It's actually fun. Yeah. Get him in here. Come on in. Okay. I want you to know that also uh, on the on the bottom of the sermon there is some uh, further thought and discussion questions. Those are really good things to look at uh, if you want to know uh, ask more questions about the text. These are also questions that some of the community groups um, go through. So maybe in preparing for community group or whatever, these are good things to, to go through. I know some community groups actually study the passage before, sometimes afterwards. So, but maybe for you, some further thought as you look at this passage, it might be good uh, to go through that. When I was in college, I grocery shopped at the Watergate. Uh, do you guys know what the Watergate is? The Watergate is a condominium, very large. You probably know it, the Watergate for uh, its infamous um, 1973 uh, break-in by uh, part of uh, Nixon's staff to the DNC, who had headquarters there at, at um, the Watergate. But the Watergate is more than just that. It's this large condominium on the Potomac. And it was the closest grocery store to where uh, my roommate and I lived. And we would go grocery shopping at the Watergate, the Safeway that was down on the bottom floor um, of the Watergate. And uh, this day, there's sometimes famous people, politicians that shopped at um, the Watergate. And uh, one day while I was shopping, there was Elizabeth Dole, right? Bob Dole's wife. Um, he was had just... Um, lost the um, run for presidency when I was there, and uh, Elizabeth Dole was actually running for U.S. Senate in North Carolina at that time, and uh, there she was. And here was my opportunity to talk to Elizabeth Dole. I was pumped. And so, I mean, you get, you know, rare few chances to do things like this. And so, here she is. She's in front of me in line, checking out groceries, and I'm behind her. And, uh, you know, with the courage would say, and I said to Elizabeth Dole, I said, those are some nice bananas. <laughs> and literally, no lie, Elizabeth Dole looked at me and said, yeah, they are. That was the extent of my conversation with Elizabeth Dole. Oh, my word. You know those moments? Those moments where you can make a statement, that you can start it off right, whether it's asking someone on a first date, a job interview, an important presentation. You want to start on the right foot. And here is Peter's opportunity to talk to a church that is suffering, a church that is in pain, a church that is facing persecution, social ostracism. He has a chance to talk to them and on the right foot and give a statement. And what does he do? He gives them a doxology, a praise to God. Okay, talking to people in hard situations one-on-one, you don't say things like, you know, God is good. You know, he has a reason. Rejoice. You know, you don't say that to people. 
that are going through suffering. But this is what Peter has chosen to do? Bro. Why direct those who are suffering for the name of Christ to praise God? Why direct those who are suffering to praise God and to praise His story of redemption? Let's find out, shall we? Let's look together. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is your word. This is the doxology and praise to you. God, let this praise well up in our hearts. Despite anything that we're facing. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Again, welcome. Uh, we have been going, we're starting a series in the book of First Peter that will take us in the winter and the spring. And uh, we have seen so far that this book of First Peter is uh, a resume of the Christian life. Okay? Uh, and what we mean by a resume of the Christian life, it says, what are the uh, things that we experience as Christians? You know, kind of maybe um, the uh, education or... Uh, things that we've done in the past, and then the tasks that we do as Christians. And then we then present this resume to the culture around us. This is what it means to believe in Christ. This is what it means uh, in what we do for Christ. And this is a condensation, uh, just condensing of all these things together in First Peter. So, that's kind of the overview of the book. But this is what we found so far in the greeting that we studied last week. Who is Peter talking to? He is talking to a people that were in Rome, many of them, that were uh, kicked out of Rome for uh, their kind of Christian ways. 
and they settled into northern Turkey as kind of um, settlers of Asia Minor uh, for the Roman Empire. And uh, many of them came from either Gentile or Jewish backgrounds, uh, but Claudius wanted them out. And now Peter is writing 10 to 15 years later after these people have been literal exiles and kicked out of Rome to this new place. And we see that uh, while they are exiles, um, literally, they also are, also are exiles figuratively and spiritually. In a world that is foreign, a world that um, you face suffering, in a world that doesn't always identify with those that live for the kingdom of God and for Jesus Christ. And also we saw that even though that we are separated by millennia, even though that we are separated by um, thousands of miles, we still live in a culture that is a place where we are exiles as Christians it looks different, but we are also can fall into that category. So that's kind of what we looked at last week. And now Peter goes past this greeting into what he is going to do to encourage and speak to these individuals. And he does it with a doxology, a praise to God. And he uses lots of transcendent language like God the Father Jesus Christ, the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. He uses words like rejoice and salvation and faith and glory and angels and salvation. Loaded, transcendent language that if we have grown up in church and gone through liturgies, we've said these words over and over again. And on top of that, he uses a lot of run-on sentences, okay? This is just a long, long sentences with independent clauses, independent clauses, all these things that are like, oh, how do I fit this all together? I mean, if I'm going to talk to someone that is facing suffering, I want to give them the five steps, you know, the five steps of what you need to do to deal with suffering in your life and trials for standing for Jesus. But this is not what Peter has decided to do. Instead, he's given them a doxology. But in these nine verses is such richness, is such a message of this narrative of the gospel a narrative of what Christianity is, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Christ figuring into it that is so rich that it will actually give hope to people that are living in a story of suffering. So in these nine verses is a story that is incredibly rich. So will you join me as we unpack this story? Can you do it? Sound good? Okay, let's do it. Let's start. Verse 3, okay? And he, and he says this, this doxology, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he, should we bless him? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So, this born-again language, He has called us to a new life, a new way to live. He is again echoing the thoughts of Jesus, 
who, we started this two weeks ago with Mike Wenzler came, the same language that Jesus gave to Nicodemus. Born again language. That you need to live a new life. That, and Nicodemus questioned, does that mean I climb back in my mother's womb? No, it's a spiritual rebirth that comes from the Lord to be able to see things that you had not seen before. Uh, okay, tell me about that. Well, uh, uh, I guess my best example of that, I'm sorry, um, is Neo, right? The Matrix, right? Remember Neo? Doesn't he have a rebirth, right? When he takes the pill and he wakes up in that goo, and then he realizes in waking up in that, how many, you guys seen The Matrix? It's like an American film, what people say. But the idea that he was born, he lived in a story he didn't realize. That actually there had been a war between artificial intelligence and humans. And uh, he woke up to realize that all, most humans had been enslaved in this virtual world. And finally, when he woke to this, he realized this is a story I had not seen before. A narrative of how the world works that I did not even realize. And once he was woken up to that, how could he go back to living the way it was in the Matrix, just letting things be the way they were? He couldn't. It was impossible. That's what born again is. Neo in the Matrix, right? Great, thanks. Thanks, Abel. I think, though, the language born again is also very tricky in our context in Wisconsin. I don't know if you know this, but um, Wisconsin is um, the state that uh, the most people identify with being religious, the highest um, place in the United States that people say, I'm religious, but the lowest place where people say, I am born again. Okay? The highest amount of people that say, I'm religious, but the least amount of people that say, I am born again. I can give many reasons for that, but I think some, some reasons are one, that uh, the born again language is the idea that uh, it's some Kentucky Big Tent revival, right? That's what it means to be born again. Or it means that I identify with some political party. That's what it means to be born again. Or maybe being born again is some emotional response or some religious fervor in you that that means being born again. So a place where uh, we're not Southerners, for one. Two, uh, when you identify as politically, uh, we don't like that very much, considering how we vote in Wisconsin from both parties. And then thirdly and lastly, um, that uh, we're not always the most emotional people in Wisconsin, it would make sense that born-again language is hard. But is that what born-again means? Absolutely not. We see that Nicodemus, but him being born-again didn't mean that he had to be emotional, that he had to be this or that. It depended on him being good. No, absolutely not. In fact, even good people, even righteous people, even people that have things together, need to be born again. This is everyone needs to come into the realization of the narrative and the story and how God has created this world. Born again is for everyone. So for anyone to see this story, to see this narrative, to see this praise of God, they have to 
be spiritually born again to see the narrative and story that God is bringing to this world. Uh, we saw in the Matrix that there was a lot of frustration among Neo and those um, interacting with those people that did not get the story. They were stuck in that world, not understanding how the world really worked. And no matter what language you used, they just did not understand. But instead, we see with this, that if you then identify with this story, that there is something greater than we could even realize of what's happening in this world. A hope, an inheritance, a salvation, that unless you're born again, you cannot see it. Go with me and see, what does it mean to be born again? What are the things that are shown to them? Look with me again in verse 3. It says this, He calls us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So one thing, you're born again to a living hope. Second, you're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And lastly and thirdly, this born again means that who by God's power you've been guarded through faith for what a salvation ready to reveal to you in the last time. A hope, an inheritance, and a salvation. Peter is saying to them, you are given something when you are born again that is so great and so good that this world sometimes does not see. Now, understand, in the Roman Empire at that time, there was a large segment of the population that believed in something called existentialism. The idea that uh, uh, past this world there was really nothing, that you had to live for the moment and what was there. Uh, we would call it modern-day nihilism. And the uh, thing is, the Roman Empire had opulence, had beauty, had poetry, had such amazing things that you could just live for the moment and wouldn't have to live for any future hope, inheritance, or salvation because what you have now. Now, that is not always what the Christians in the church at that time were experiencing in Asia Minor. They were kind of on the bottom rung, so they couldn't always see that. But this is how, this is what was tempting to them. They could live for that and, that, and be a part of that kind of culture, or they could continue to be part of the social isolationism, the persecution that came with identifying with Christ and Christianity. What would draw them? Well, I, I, I'm a Dave Matthews fan. Any Dave Matthews fans, maybe? No one's going to admit that, are they? No. Jason Greeley is like, no, please, I'm not going to admit that. Um, but I, I love Dave, but I think he speaks to this in the culture, you know, right? Tripping billies, drink and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Nihilism is a huge part of American culture. Conquer what is before you right now, because past that, there is nothing. Don't believe me? <laughs> I'll tell you something that you're going to think is insane. My brother owns a paintball field in Poinette, Wisconsin. He rents a paintball field out a few times a year to um, a, a LARP group. Do you know what a LARP group is? Live action role play. And for 24 hours, hundreds of these people, hundreds, come to this my brother's paintball field, 
And they have these medieval outfits on that they wear for 24 hours. And they aren't cheap outfits. Some of them spend hundreds, in my brother said, thousands of dollars on these outfits. And they act like these people, right? And they also have fake love money that they spend, okay? It gets crazier, right? Some of you might, this is why you're crazy. That, um, that there are different stratus or like uh, guilds or ranks. So you can be like a serf and then you can be like a lord up there. And for 24 hours, the serfs cannot have any food from the table. They only get the leftovers, literally the leftovers from the higher-ranking people. And, uh, and they just eat that, right? These are hundreds of people that are doing this not just one time a year, but multiple times a year for 24 hours, spending lots of money doing it. A hope? A salvation, an inheritance in a virtual world? So we say, that's insane. That's crazy. I would never do something like that. Or maybe like, that's fun. But um, I would never spend money on something like that. I would never spend hours upon hours before a video screen playing video games. I would never spend hours upon hours working on a car or on my career, neglecting other things. I would never put everything into my cabin or my thing that's going to happen when I retire. What inheritance do we live for? What is our salvation? What is our hope? My argument is, is where we think the future is, is also how we live our life now. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with LARP. (laughs) That's cool. There's nothing wrong with video games. There's nothing wrong with a cabin. There's nothing wrong with working hard. But is it our hope? Is it our salvation? Is it our inheritance? Peter is saying, don't live like these others, Christian, because there is a new story that you've been born into. There is a new reality. There is a salvation and inheritance and a hope that is greater than anything that this world has. The truth is, it's hard for those that are facing these trials and persecutions because of their beliefs, because they believe in Christ, to realize that God is really for them. It is still hard. As much as you say that that hope is there, it is difficult because we are facing trials now. So go on with me in verse 6. And this is what Peter says in his continual doxology. In this, You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, verse 6 says, in this you rejoice. I find it very interesting. 
Peter does um, kind of a weird um, word thing throughout the book um, and throughout this letter. And what he does with verbs is he makes them um, purposely ambiguous in their mood, tense. And uh, here is a a, a way that he does that with this word rejoice. Um, In the Greek, it could be an indicative or it could be an imperative. He does this with other verbs um, throughout 1 Peter. An indicative would um, translate like this. You rejoice uh, in this. So you are rejoicing. Currently rejoicing because you believe this story. That's the indicative. The imperative would say rejoice. It's a command. You should rejoice. You need to rejoice. So the ambiguity is, it either is they are rejoicing or they need to rejoice. And I think he purposely puts his ambiguities in verbs in 1 Peter because there are people in both situations in the church, are there not? There are people that are rejoicing despite what they're going through. And even they're not going through much. So they'll say, yeah, God is good. I believe in him. He has hope and there is an inheritance and all that. But then there are others that might be going through trials or hard times and that Peter is commanding them, you need to rejoice in what you are dealing with. Isn't that encouraging? That you can be in a church and you can be a Christian and you can be in one of those places in your journey where the command needs to be said to you, rejoice. Or it can be said you are rejoicing, praise God. So he says, why should you rejoice? He uses this proverb, right, about fire and and trials and faith. And it actually is not his. It's a Greek proverb. And the Greek proverb says this, fire tests gold, affliction tests strong men. Okay? So the idea is that when you go through trials, when you go through persecution, it's like fire in the sense of what it does to gold, is that it burns off the imperfections. It shows what is truly there. The trials are what show what you really believe in and what you stand for. The thing is, unlike the Greek proverb, Peter goes further, doesn't he? What does he say? He says this, So that the tested generous of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He says this, faith lasts, but even gold burns. Faith in Christ and what he has done lasts. Even gold will burn. Do you know what trials do? They truly show what your hope is. If your family starts to disintegrate or something happens in your family and it crushes you or destroys you, what was your faith really in? If your job starts to go bad and it crushes you and destroying you, what was your faith really in? I could go on and on about what those things could be. What happens in trials is that it presses us 
and squeezes us to reveal what truly we believe in and what truly our hope is in. I am continually amazed by the Fox Cities of how much benevolence this city gives. How much these people do good works to the city. It is like an ethos of Appleton. That we will give money, we will give time, we will serve. That is a huge part of this city. And so, what need is there for a church? You know, people are already doing good things. Why do we need a church? We're doing great. I do wonder, though, if the tables were turned, if the people that were actually serving the food to those that are in need became the people that were in need, who would they then praise? Would they still praise God? Would they still go to church like many people do and say, God, you are good, even though now I'm in the position that needs help? Would that still happen? Is there still a need for people that are good and virtuous and righteous in this city to realize that they need to be born again into a different hope, into a different thing than they realize what Christianity is. Is that preachy enough for you? <laughs> but I, I, I see that. He goes on though. He says this in verse 7. So that, this little conditional clause, so that, you go through trials, so that. Meaning that God puts you in positions. He puts you through trials. He puts you through persecution. He puts you through suffering. So something will happen in your life. That there will be actual change. That there will actually be goodness revealed even going through these kind of problems. Uh, rule number one. If someone is going through trials and problems that you know in your life, do not say this. God has a plan. Okay? Don't do that, okay? Wisdom says try to just listen to them and love them. But that's not the theme what Peter does. He does say God has a plan even when they are going through suffering. Now, when someone is going through suffering and pain and you've given enough time and there's wisdom to then speak into what they're dealing with, I would encourage you that you can start to say this. And this is what this argument might look like. This is what some people say to me that are going through major pain and suffering and how they then view God. How could God allow this? How could God, a good God, allow this to happen in my life? He is unjust. He is not right. He is not for me. I play this logical game with people when they say that. I'm... I'm a little confused by what you're saying. The reason I'm confused by what you're saying is that you say, this is not this is Alvin Plantica's argument, Notre Dame philosophy professor. I look at you, if you think that God is big enough to get angry at for his injustice, can he not then be big enough to do something in your life that you don't know what the end outcomes would be? That he's actually doing something in your life to, for the good? 
for his purposes, for his reasons. You can't both say, be mad in God at his injustice, that he's big enough to get mad at and angry about, about what he does certain things, but at the same time not say that he has things and reasons for the, why he does things in your life that you don't understand. Does that make sense? You can't have both. Moving on. Okay. Um, you know what? That's great, Dan. God has a purpose for those things, but that really seems pretty cruel. <laughs> that God would have suffering and pain in what people are going through. And this is where it gets really, really good. Verse 8 through 12. Look to me again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Did you not see him? Um, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter is a very unique individual. Why is he a unique individual? Because he lives between two incredible ages. One age, he explains, is the before the incarnation, Christ's coming. And one is the age after Christ has come. And here is an individual that lives between both of those ages. He can see the story unfold in front of him of God's redemptive plan for a broken world. And in this, he says this, do you realize that there were people that existed before Christ, that wrote in the Old Testament, that realized that there was suffering in the world, that God was still entering in the world, and he was actually going to send a hope and a salvation. They didn't see Jesus. They had not seen him. But still, Jesus' spirit ministered to them and showed them that there would be a hope and a salvation to that world. And you know what? It came through Jesus, and now I have seen it, and the apostles have seen it. And now you who have, are past Jesus' time, who did not see Jesus, can look backwards into what Jesus has done and see his redemption in this world, and then look forward that he will come again. Yes, you do not see, but even people in the Old Testament did not see, but they believed. How much more should you then believe if Jesus has actually come and done these things? Still don't believe me, right? But I don't see Jesus. I haven't seen physically God. I wish I was Peter or John or one of those disciples because if I saw Jesus literally, then I would believe. Uh-uh-uh. <laughs> Did Peter believe when he saw Jesus? That's what makes this book so rich. 
that even Peter, when Jesus said to him, you will have to suffer, I will have to suffer, that is what this story is all about. What did Peter say? I don't believe. And he saw Jesus. Man. Here's the thing. Unless you were born again, it doesn't matter if there was a cloud formation in the sky that said, John, God is real. Believe in him. You would still not believe. Here's the thing. During this time of Peter, there was all these Jewish communities, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that had been given all this hope in the Old Testament that a Messiah would come. And they're also given all these laws. But instead of holding on to the hopes and the ideas of what the suffering Messiah would do, instead they held on to these laws. Okay, I don't... I don't really see this happening. So what we're going to do is we're going to form our own community now. We're going to live in our own laws now. We're going to live our own way now. Yeah, God says he's going to bring a Messiah, but we just don't see it. So we're going to live now with what he's given us. And then when Jesus came, they didn't see it. I would argue that people in the United States live the same way. Jesus has given us all these good things to live by. The Sermon on the Mount, ways to live, all these things. You know, I don't know if he's going to come back again. I don't know if there's a heaven. I don't know if there's a, a hope. But you know what? He's given us some good things in the Gospels. So we'll cling to that and do those things. But that other stuff about talking about him coming again, his hope for the way that he'll remake this world and it will be destroyed and something new will be made, I, I don't know about that. You know, it's easy to believe that in comfortable America, is it not? Where we're comfortable and fine and we're doing great. It's easy to say, oh, what we have is what we get. But for those who live in suffering around the world, for those that are literally going through persecution, are literally not knowing where their next meal would come, this is true hope. That this world is broken and Jesus will come to redeem a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. And for some of you that maybe are suffering through chronic illness or have gone through so much pain in your life, you might also start clinging to that hope. I'm going to make a theological point to you. So it might be a little heavy, but please go with me here. Why do we have to suffer as Christians? Why do we have to do it? For emphasis, I'll move this over here. Do you understand that God came to this broken world to live in a way that this world is supposed to be in Jesus When Jesus lived the way this world is supposed to be, what did he get? He got persecution. He got suffering. He got pain. He got ridicule. If we then identify with Jesus, if we are united to him, 
in both his glory and his suffering. If we then live the way that he calls us to live in the reality of his kingdom, not the way this broken world is, shouldn't we expect the same? Suffering? Pain? Persecution? And why would we be surprised when we do face those things? Do you live in such a way that your inheritance is in God? That you will actually not live in the comfortableness of this world, but instead in the comfortableness that will come in the kingdom and the inheritance that is there? Do you do that by the way that you spend your money? Then maybe sometimes it's pain and it's sacrifice when I give to others instead of spending on myself. Do you do that in the way that you present yourself to your friends and those that are around you? That you actually believe that stuff? That you're born again? That Jesus is the king of this world, not your career? Do you live in that story and that reality? Or do you live in the reality that this is what you get? This is the world and what it's supposed to be. Because if you are born again, you would live into the reality of a kingdom that's to come and not yet. And you would face the suffering of this world because they look at you and say, what are you doing? And you say, I'm living for God's kingdom and not this one. You know, I watched The Matrix over and over again. I watched Star Wars over and over again. I, uh, I watched Harry Potter over and over again. And the stories are rich every time I watch them. This narrative, right? The narrative that um, Neo is the salvation for the world. Or that Darth Vader, this evil character, actually redeems his son later on. Or that Snape, this guy that I hated throughout Harry Potter, was actually for Harry the whole time. And sometimes I like to read it over and over again. I like to long to look to these stories of redemption and purpose and watch the movies over and over again. Just bask in them. This is what's so rich. At the end of this passage, it says this. This is the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Do you realize that angels look upon this story of redemption? And they glorify it that we are in it? That we get to be partakers in this grand story of God's love for us? That they are like us watching those movies over and over again saying how awesome that is. That they are saying, we wish we were in this story because it's so good and so magnificent and so glorious. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are in a story that is so amazing? That we are in an age that Christ reigns and that he will come again? And that one day we will look back at it all and say, what a magnificent narrative that God created and built 
And we will rejoice like the angels, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see we are in this story of yours. That it is not just randomness. That in fact, there is a way that you are unfolding in our lives. The story of your good news, even through trials and suffering. And God, we pray that those trials would cause us to say, all glory and honor be yours, because you are showing us more and more what your story is. Let's pray these things in your son's name. Amen.